We are continuing in our series called Start, and um, uh, I want to link the series into uh, not only starting well, but I also particularly want to talk about finishing well today. Uh, What we've done has been our habit that in January that we would always have a message on stewardship. Uh, But when I was preparing for this message, I thought, I won't just speak about money. I felt God direct me in a different uh, direction to talk about stewarding your life. How we all have a responsibility to steward our life uh, well. Um, I'm going to start with with an illustration from my my parents. Uh, My I think my mum and dad are a fantastic example of someone that stewed their lives well and finished strong, finished strong. You've probably heard me talk about my mum and dad. My dad has been a leader in a church since the age of 28, uh, when he was a deacon in a Baptist church in uh, South Norwood. He's always been involved in, he is 80 in April. Uh, He's just overseen a £500,000 building project in the church he's attending, runs their finances. He's just handing that over and uh, he's just uh, an amazing, amazing leader. But I really want to highlight my mum. She's quite a remarkable woman as well. Uh, my mum, for over 30 years, has been involved in a project called Operation Tanzania. She's involved in a group that meets every Thursday evening, uh, afternoon. And they uh, take clothes and they iron them and pack them. And then they send them to Tanzania. This came out of... Uh, uh, a couple in the church in Bedford, Brickhill, the church was called, that felt called by God to go to Tanzania. Uh, they went out with the Baptist Missionary Society and found need there and came back to the church that they were sent from and said, look, could you provide clothes? So my mum has faithfully, you know, behind the scenes, every Thursday afternoon, they're ironing, packing, and they put them in a nice little covering and then it's it's sent and she she found out that they needed more blankets in Tanzania and so she started knitting herself so if you're ever with my mum she's knitting she's knitting a blanket and then she started a group that were knitting so they they kind of knit and chat but they're doing it with mission in mind and then my mum decided that she would multiply groups if you get involved with the Tibbet family there will be multiplication somewhere Okay, and so she runs two groups, one in St. Nitz and one in Bedford, because uh, about 20 years ago, they moved to be involved in a church plant. They moved from the family home, they sold up the family home. We were devastated of them selling up the family home, but they know this was God's call. They, they went and moved to St. Nitz, but my parents are very practical when it comes to finishing well. They've just moved back to Woodside in Bedford, and they bought a bungalow. In fact, they've always been very, they don't get emotional about the kind of finishing well. Me and my brother were more concerned about them selling their house, the family home. In fact, we came back and had one last game of cricket in the garden. Can we come back? We're in our 30s when they're doing this. I scored a 50 in the garden against my brother. And uh, we were more emotional. But they've always stewarded the seasons of life well. Uh, anyway, they get back. My mum's running two groups. She's doing Operation Tanzania, but she decides she wants to start another group. Yeah? It's called Connections. She realizes that some seniors that are coming to her knitting group are really lonely. And so she says, not everyone knits. I'll run a new group. So my mum and dad, my dad's 80, they start a new group. Yeah? And now they're running a group called Connections for seniors. 
and they do some fun things, and then they always have a thought. They call it a thought of the day. And then at the carol service, you know, we did big carol services. Well, in Woodside, they were doing it as well. They invited eight guests to the carol services. And I thought to myself, Steve, you're just going to have to up your pace. You just, you know, just, just because they're just fantastic examples of people that are serving God and uh, faithfully running the race and connecting into community and providing places for community. Can I encourage you, if you didn't in the break, get in a group. Get in a group. It is good for you, and it is a place where you can also make a contribution. Maybe you will be inspired by my elderly parents to maybe lead a group uh, at some point. Yeah, thank you. So I want to speak on um, stewarding your life well. Why do some people not only start well, but finish well? Where others may start well, but they kind of fall off the pace. Something happens, maybe a life event, something happens. Or actually not just fall off the pace, but stop running altogether. Start out as zealots. Yeah, I'm committed, I'm committed for Jesus. I'll give my life to you, whatever it means. And then gradually get a bit lukewarm. Uh, In fact, this message is as, as much for those of us my age and above. Okay, so if you are 50 and above here, yeah, this is for us. I mean, if you're younger, listen in. Listen in, because there might be a few things to help you keep running the race. But my main concern is for people like me, because I see it too often, where kind of things happen in life, don't work out as you hoped, and you kind of miss it in God. When really you should be in a season of of most fruitfulness. Um, Gordon MacDonald... I wrote a brilliant book, I've recommended it before, it's worth recommending and called Resilient Life. He says in the introduction, in the great race of life, there are some Christ followers who stand out from all the rest. I call them the resilient ones. The further they run, the stronger they get. They seem to possess these spiritual qualities. They are committed to finishing strong. They run inspired by a big picture view of life. They don't kind of get pulled down into small things. That's my parents. They're kind of still thinking eternity's coming, but while I'm here, I'm going to keep playing my part. They run free of the weight of the past. They run confidently trained to go the distant. And they run in the company of a happy few. So that's something that Gordon MacDonald, a Christian, American Christian, a teacher and writer said that if you run well, you want to get in, in a company, in a group with other believers. So I thought, how can we look at this today? I thought, well, I'll tell you what, we'll contrast two Old Testament kings and what the Bible says about them at the end of their life. And I'm hoping that all of us will finish well, but I'm also hoping through today that there'll be some points of application where you go, I'm going to start, I'm going to get, I'm going to, actually, I'm going to get back in training, I'm going to put some things in place. So first we're going to look at King David and we're going to compare him to the last words uh, in Scripture about King Solomon. So first, King David, a famous king. And it records at the end of his life in 1 Chronicles 29, 26 and 28, David, son of Jesse, was king over Israel. He ruled over Israel for 40 years, seven in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. He died at a good old age 
having enjoyed long life, wealth and honor, his son Solomon succeeded him as king. I mean, this is a good, this is good obituary, isn't it? Um, a good life, 40 years, wealth and honor and a succession plan that bears fruit. This is a great, I, I hope your life finishes like that and they say good things of you. Probably at your funeral, they will say good things of you. They always do, don't they? But, um, which is appropriate. Uh, but in this context, you can sort of fill it out a bit because just before they record David's death, he gathers all the people together and all the mighty men and leaders and he gathers them all together and uh, he, he does at least three things. Firstly, he gathers all the wealth of the nation and his own individual wealth. And he says, look, I want to take up a massive offering for a building project, which I'm not going to build, but I'm going to take it up. And it's like a massive legacy from his whole um, uh, 40 years of king as king to the building of the temple, the dream of a place where God would dwell. And so he leads all the people to do that. And so they take up this massive offering that Solomon then builds. Uh, that's, that's quite a legacy to have. Uh, he passes on to um, the next generation well. And the other thing he does is that he prays in front of the people, all gathered, which becomes the foundational prayer for what we now know is the Lord's Prayer in the New Testament. That's quite a legacy to have as a leader. As compared to Solomon, let's read about Solomon. See, Solomon started well, we know that, but he didn't finish well. And this is how 1 Kings 11 summarizes his life. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the books of the annals of Solomon, of wisdom writings? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. So what does it say about Solomon? It says it reigned for 40 years. That's all he gets, really. There is a succession plan, but it's in trouble. If you read it in its context, there's division in the land. And after Solomon, the land of Israel was split forever. Yeah? And so that's not a great... Disunity is not a great legacy. Um, there's no mention of honor. There's no mention of wealth. There's no mention of a good life. Um, it's not a great finish. There's no legacy. So be careful. Be careful, particularly as you get your 40s, 50s, 60s. Be careful. Okay? Because Solomon started so well. They say that Solomon in his youth wrote Song of Songs. A very explicit book in the Old Testament. Uh, who said God is against sex? He's for it in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Woohoo! Okay, and he wrote it, and it's full of erotic and romantic love. Solomon as a young man. And then the mature man comes to him and writes Proverbs. Wow. King Solomon, full of wisdom. So you can start well, you can even mature, and you can be full of wisdom. You've gained and studied and learned. And then what happens to Solomon? He says his heart turned away from God. You know, David mucked up, but he always kept a soft heart towards God. You can muck up, but as long as you're soft-hearted and repent and come back to him, you can get back on track. But Solomon didn't. His heart grow cold, and he started worshipping other gods. 
And ultimately, he writes Ecclesiastes, which says life is meaningless. And so by the end of it, what happened to this man that went from, you know, the kind of temple building king, yeah, full of wisdom to then, hmm. Well, I just want to draw quickly three areas where I think we can learn to navigate well. And I want, as we do, I want to ask you, do you think you're running more like David or running more like Solomon? What are they going to say at the end of your life? The first one is navigating the seasons of life well. Um, you know, people that start well but don't finish well. They seem to have the ability, those that do well, uh, to navigate the challenges of life that comes. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, there is a time to mourn and a time to laugh. Different seasons of life and how you navigate them are really important. I was privileged to be away with a group of leaders, they're national leaders within the church in the UK. It was hosted by Terry Virgo. And it was great two days. We just shared stories and prayed with each other. There was no decisions to be made for two days. It was wonderful to hear what God is doing. But what was, what was really healthy about it, it was real. Because very often people were sharing of great gospel and blessing and breakthrough and also great pain, difficulty, or in the family or in health. And very often you, your life will, could have areas of blessing and areas of pain. We shouldn't be surprised by this because actually ultimately the gospel, the good news of Jesus comes through, the blessing uh, comes through the pain. That Jesus ultimately gave his life for us, that he died on a cross so that we might know God. So even in the once and all sacrifice of Jesus, there is the model, there is the picture of blessing and pain. Gordon MacDonald, in his book Resilient Life, uh, I've said this before, but I use this a lot when I'm pastoring people or working, as I do predominantly with church leaders in my job, is that there are some underlying questions of life which are just like the undercurrent. And very often when you're walking or navigating through a season of life, this one is there. In your 20s, it's who am I? It's a question of identity. In your 30s is, how can I fit this all in, especially if you have young children? In your 40s, there must be something more than this, which is, you know, midlife crisis. Is this it? I thought it was going to work out different to this. In your 50s is where I am, is can I hold on? I have more responsibility in my life than ever before. And it's like, can I hold on? Can I, can I come up with another sermon that people won't fall asleep on and things like that? I mean, that's what you're hoping as well. So, you know, it's like, can I hold on? You know, I go home today and then my, my pad's out for the next one and a meeting's lined up and people, it's all fun, but it's like, can I, can I keep going? In your 60s, am I redundant? Oh, don't need me anymore. They're just, it's all about passing on to the next generation. Man, I've just been carrying huge responsibility. And then in your 70s, was it all worth it? And in your 80s, how am I going to die? These are the big questions that, you know, people start to ask. Such an encouragement for those of you in your 80s here. I'm just so glad you came to church today. (laughs) The youthful pastor lifting your head to eternity. Okay. Bill Hybels, in his book Simplify, says, uh, look, these are things to watch out for. These can derail you. Okay, these are the things that in a particular season, if you don't 
uh, handle well, you can, you can you know, fall off the pace or even lose, fall, drop out of the race. This is unhealthy relationships. You can do this when you're young, when you go, I'm lonely, but he's lovely, but he's not a Christian. No. But I'm sure if I pray hard, here comes a God. And, and you get tied up with someone and then, oh, then your emotions get attached to him. And oh my gosh, am I going to follow Jesus? Or oh, it's the love of my life. And you, you can get involved in unhealthy relationships for your race, your faith race. Or actually, you can get in with the wrong crowd at school or at work, and gradually, you thought you'd influence them, but they started to influence you. This is why we encourage you to get involved in a group, because we're on mission out there in the world, but you want to come in and share and pray and then go out again. Or some people don't just transition well through the different seasons of life. They're kind of like, kind of a party animal. I'm just going to stay youthful forever. Yeah? A party girl or a party boy. It's all about fun. And I don't want to have to take on any responsibility. Or, you know, I'm going to be in education forever. And actually, when I've done that, Dad, can you fund me traveling around the world? Yeah, you know, if you, any of you, I, 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 when I say to my kids, I, I give them, the, I left school at 16 and caught a 7 o'clock AM train and da 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 da. Oh, da da da. Now, come on, grow up, be men. Some people just, some guys, they're just boys. They just say boys. Don't want to take responsibility. Take responsibility. Find a girl. Ask her to marry you. Get a job. Yeah. Stop playing computer games. You know, things like that. You know, be a man. Don't be a boy. Oh. Okay. And, and, And basically, what happens is it catches up with you later. Because suddenly you'll get to your 35 think, actually, I better find a girl. Yeah. Addiction. Some people start with a drink and it becomes you become alcoholic. Yeah, that's you don't navigate pressure of life well. Stress comes and says, Oh, I'll just have a drink, and before you know it, you're an alcoholic. One of the most scary things in fact the I would go as far as to say the worst life ministry week of my life happened in November last year. Where some of you know I had to fly to Sydney at short notice. For 10 days, because a senior leader, a friend of mine, who had been pastoring for many years, it came to light that he, he had had a gambling addiction for 20 years. Phew, that was awful. Shipwrecked his life. Uh, you know, I'm believing that God can restore him, because that's the God we serve. But I, gosh... Scary. And I think to myself, why? Why early on when he was just struggling in the first year or two? Why didn't he seek help? And when he kind of slipped again, why didn't he ask for help? So what the enemy will do is that if he is waiting for a time to where major impact. And a lot of these things catch up with you in your 40s and 50s. Unresolved stuff in your childhood and your 20s. If you don't resolve them between 20 and 40, they'll really catch up with you in your 40s and 50s. Or maybe you're mad at the church. Have you ever met Christians that are mad at the church? They're mad at the pastor. Yeah. I've met some of those. Yeah. And it's, you know, sometimes there's a good reason to be mad at the church. But, or you feel overlooked or disappointed or you wouldn't do it that way. A whole range of things, yeah? Um, but be careful. Because what can happen is you can get disconnected you start to withdraw. You, you come every other week. But before you know it, the enemy's really it's got a nice little plan going on here. It's going to take you out. Okay. Now look, 
This is not a perfect church, and I am definitely not a perfect pastor. Okay? But I do know what it, it feels like to go through a time when your family isn't worked as how you thought it would. So within the New Frontiers family of churches, when Terry Virgo handed over to his sons about five, approaching five years ago, um, he didn't appoint me as one of his successors. Now, the thing about this, it wasn't just in the context of a church. This was in the context of a movement. So I attended the Brighton Conference where there are 4,000 people there and there are 15 people at the front. And because I was one of the leaders, I used to have a seat reserved for me, but I turned up the conference. I'm not one of the leaders there, so there's no seat reserved. And um, so I'm sitting at the back, and every person I bump into for four days says, how are you feeling? And Oh, do you think you should have been appointed? And for basically two years, every conversation I had with people, sometimes internally, but mainly externally, were asking this question. And I concluded the way to navigate through this season was at least to do two things. I probably did more. I talked to a lot of people and a lot, got a lot, of, a lot of good counsel. But the first, I was not going to be defined by someone else's decision. Okay? Don't be defined. Because what happens very quickly is you can get into rejection. And if you've got a filter of rejection, trust me, it will not help you navigate life well. So if you're there, think, oh gosh, you know, I sometimes react like that. I get defensive, things like that. Listen up. Okay? Um, and the other thing is I, I thought, I am not going to get bitter. I've met, I don't know, I'm sorry to tell you, I've met bitter pastors and I've met better people. And they're not fun to be with, okay? And it eats away at them and fundamentally shapes them and sometimes the trajectory of their church. And I thought, I'm not going to get bitter because that's not good for you lot. Because that gets us disconnected from the wider fellowship. So it was a difficult couple of years and that's why it's been fantastic, ironic, some would say, when Terry Virgo phoned me up and says, I think you should head up New Frontiers in the UK. I think you should help us do that. It's kind of full circle. There are purposes, trials, the scripture calls them, that prepares you for moments when you, uh, <laughs> things evolve in a, a differing way. Um, unforgiveness, therefore, can derail you. Cynicism. Have you ever met negative people? Whenever you're with them, they're negative I'm not talking about being unreality. I'm not talking about honour without kind of, you know, comment or judgment. But just people that are just cynical. They're negative. And after a while you think, gosh, I wonder what they say about me when I'm not around, yeah? And you just think, oh, gosh. And so people withdraw from you and things like that. These are the reason that people sometimes don't finish well. Secondly, it says of David, you like David or Solomon, when it comes to your wealth. Do you know, if you steward your money well, you will accumulate wealth over years. Most people want it in a year, but it, to, to accumulate wealth takes decades of good choices and stewardship. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Okay? Compound interest alone will tell you that. Okay? Um, are you going to be like David or Solomon? It says of David, he had wealth. It says of Solomon, 40 years. Okay? Bill Hybels in his book... Uh, Simplify gives five key beliefs he has about money. I can't beat them. I'm going to go through them quickly. He says, firstly, all I have comes from God. I mean, if you start there, the rest falls into place very quickly. Most of us don't start there. We always think, actually, some of it might be God's, but most of it is mine. And by the way, I did all the hard work to get it. Well, you know, God created you. Any gifts you have, you're responsible to hone and steward. But I tell you, it's grace from him. If you have a perspective, it's all him, all his, and you're called to steward rather than it 
all mine, and I might give him a bit when I've got some change left as a game changer. Secondly, he says, I live joyfully within God's current provision for my life. Joyfully. Were we having us the more monster? Just give me a little bit more and I'll be happier. Things like that. And which leads into the dangers of debt. So live within the provision you have. Thirdly, I honour God by giving him the first tenth of all my earnings to his purposes in the world. I've done this all my Christian life. 30 plus years. I'm looking all right on it. Yeah, okay. I've honoured God first. First fruits. And this phrase... To his purposes in the world. Just think. Just think. If, if, do you know if the whole church tithe here, we would at least have double the income? Do you know that? We know that. I know that. Rick Warren says that in most churches, if everyone tithes, they'd have four times the amount of income. Just think what you could do. Just think how many people you could serve. The poor, the children, the other plants and sites. And, uh, oh, Anyway, time is going. Fourthly, I set aside a portion of all my earnings into a savings account for emergencies, giving opportunities, and my later years. You know, when the government and your employer and others say, put aside some money for your pension, you might want to take their advice. It's good advice. Because the likelihood is most of us will live a long time now. Not all of us, but most of us will live. Uh, Age is going on and on. And I don't want any of you to live in poverty in your last years. And lastly, I live each day with an open ear towards heaven, eager to respond to any whisper from God regarding my resources. Ah, wealth. The stewarding of your money is a really important thing for you, but it's also really important the way you honour God. Lastly, today and quickly, a lasting legacy. What about David? Are you going to be like David? Just passes on well, passes his resources on well, uh, passes on well succession to his son. Or Solomon, 40 years. I thought, how can I land this? I thought, do you know what I'll do? I'll ask a question I've asked before, which I have to say that it's one of the things that concerns me more pastorally than most things in this church. And that is that the vast majority of this church do not have a will. When I found that out, I was really shocked. You know, one of those times when as a pastor you think, oh! Gosh, I wish I could just run around and help everyone get, get, get such an important legacy um, piece of legal document in place. So I want to ask you again, have you got a will? I thought, how can I really bring this home? I thought, do you know what I would do on this occasion? I would ask Tim Brown, who's the defence barrister, goes to the lease site, just to come up and give you a little bit of legal speak when it comes to the importance of a will. So let's welcome the one and only Tim Brown, please. It's often very interesting to see people's reactions to me dressed like this. My wife, Sarah, is a primary school teacher, and I went into her school careers fate dressed like this, and the first question I was asked by a six-year-old was, are you Judge Judy? (laughs) Now, I wasn't quite sure whether to be more worried about the fact that a six-year-old thought I was a woman, or that a six-year-old was sat at home watching Judge Judy, but um, that's a question for another day. So... We thought this might give you an idea of how serious this question is, because it's one thing to see me at the front of the church and have a bit of a laugh. 
dressed like this. But if you have to come across someone like me or dressed like me as a result of someone close to you not having drafted a will, then that's a whole different kettle of fish. That all of a sudden becomes quite serious. So I thought the easiest way to tackle this problem is to, to answer three, the three most common reasons why people don't make a will. And the first one is fairly straightforward. It's a little bit morbid thinking about having to make a will. It makes us confront our own mortality because you only make a will if you're thinking about what's going to happen to you when you're dead. Well, I've got some bad news for you, I'm afraid. Um, you only have two choices, die with a will or die without. There's no middle ground. So if you think by not making a will you can somehow delay the inevitable, it's not going to happen. Okay, so let's put that one to bed straight away. Secondly, most people think that what they want to happen with whatever wealth they have will happen anyway. Well, that might be the case, but in a lot of situations you'd be very surprised. So let me say this, if you own a house, if you have children... If you have any property that you want to leave to a specific person, wig, who are you going to leave that to? The only way to do it is by making a will. Let me give you an example. Most of you, if you have children, will spend a long time agonizing over who's going to babysit those children on the rare occasion you get to go out, which school you're going to send them to. But if you don't make a will, essentially what you are doing is leaving the decision as to who brings up your children in the hands of someone who you have no say in their appointment. If you don't make a will appointing guardians for your children, a court will make the decision. A judge dressed like me will make the decision who knows nothing about you, nothing about your children, and may not have in his mind the same factors that you would have. So please, if you have children... Think about making a will. And finally, the the reason most people don't make a will is the cost. They think, I don't want to really be handing over any of my hard-earned cash to some lawyer. Well, the first thing that we learn at law school when we're doing probate uh, law is that we will make more money out of estates where there is no will than we ever will out of drafting wills in the first place. Let me give you an analogy. If you have a car, you will take out insurance. And can I just say that if you've not taken out insurance, I'll leave some cards by the door because you might need me in a different capacity. (laughs) But the reason you take out car insurance, aside from it being the law of the land, is that because common sense tells you that the cost of that insurance is way less than the financial consequences of being involved in an accident. Think of it. You're involved in a car accident, how much you might have to pay. That's why you have insurance. It's the same principle with a will. The cost of a will is far less than the cost, both emotional and financial, of trying to put right an estate where there is no will. So please, can I just urge you, if you do nothing else today, think about making a will if you've not got one. If you've had one for a while, think about reviewing it. And just to put your minds even further at rest, if you're still worried about the cost... There are ways of having a will drafted, if not for free, very cheaply, a perfectly good professional will. Can I ask you to consider coming to the stewardship seminar where Steve will be providing excellent advice on stewarding your money in general, but I will also be there to answer any questions that you have about drafting a will. 
and to give you some tips on how to get a perfectly good will for a small donation to charity. I believe there's a leaflet in King's Week this week which will have that information. Read it, make use of it, and please, if you have any questions, come along to the Stewardship Seminar. Thank you. Okay. In other words, guys, if you don't want your mother-in-law to bring up your children, <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about it now, okay? Uh, if you want to make sure that your money goes to the people you want it to go, and not ultimately back to the state, then you need to get a will in place. So look, let's finish well. Let's start well. Let's finish strong. Um, Let's navigate the seasons of life well. Let's steward our money well. And let's uh, leave a positive legacy for our family members and children as uh, we go forward together. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, just uh, so aware, Lord, uh, uh, knowing some circumstances that people are walking through that for some of this, this isn't just a, a a preach. This is life at the moment. There are life choices to make in different seasons. There's the, the concerns over loved ones recently who've passed away or loved ones that are very unwell. There's concerns for children and legacy and concerns for money and seasons of life. And God, we just want to come to you and say, Lord, let this message be such a comfort and also a real help. And I pray for people here. I pray for many to come to the stewardship seminar on the 27th, the 26th, Tuesday the 26th. And for, as a church, that we would steward our lives well and we'd finish strong. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.